Please open your Bibles to the 14th chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapter 14. We're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Heroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea. By Pi-Harath, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, then the angel of the Lord, excuse me, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. All night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. 
And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the salvation that you worked for the Israelites so many years ago. We pray now as your word is open that you would help us to understand and make application of this truth to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, as you saw, we come to the Red Sea, and it's a story or passage that's very familiar probably to all of you in this room. We probably have all heard the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. So it's a very familiar story, and sometimes the problem with familiar stories is we get so familiar with it, we kind of miss what's going on and the point of it. And today, I really want us to look at two things, uh, God's purpose, and then we'll take some time and look at what actually occurred and why that matters. We'll make some application at the end. But God's purpose. And we see God's purpose revealed in at least two verses here. Verse 4 and verse 18 say it most explicitly. Uh, So look with me there. Uh, Verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so uh, my point for this message is the Egyptians know Yahweh. The Egyptians know Yahweh. And we see this here. What is God doing? Well, maybe we could see it in two parts, but I think they're not really separated. But he says that he would be glorified. God is seeking his own glory. How's that going to be accomplished? Well, the Egyptians are going to know who Yahweh is. Look with me again, verse 18. He said, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, which again is that word Yahweh. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. And so we see those two, again, closely related. They will know who I am. They will know Yahweh when I get glory over them. You may remember, we saw this way back when, but Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh talks about how he doesn't know the Lord. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Now, I said way back then that this is really setting the stage for all that's going to happen in the coming chapters. And here we are coming to the end of it. And what is God doing? Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. And am I going to listen to this God I don't know? Of course not. What's Pharaoh going to do? What Pharaoh wants to do because Pharaoh's God. And I don't know this other God. And so now God has been doing it all along with the pledges, the miracles that had been worked. But now he's going to manifest in an even greater way than we've seen in all the prior pledges. He's going to demonstrate that he is the Lord. He's going to cause Egypt to know that he is the Lord. And how is he going to do that? He's going to get glory, not just glory in general, but glory over Pharaoh and over the chariots and the Egyptian army. He's going to show his glory. And so as we see this, that means that God's working all this out to his purposes. God's ordering these events so that Pharaoh will attack and so that God will receive the glory. Now, I think this is always so hard for us to understand and imagine, especially when we're in the situation. Think of the Israelites here. Verses 1 through 3 paint this picture of them walking into a trap. God tells them to turn around from the way they were going and go back a different way and camp near the wilderness, but also right up against the Red Sea. And as you think in military mindset, we've been fleeing from Egypt, we're leaving Egypt, but now you want us to go back toward Egypt, and they kind of wander around for a little bit, going this way and that way, and then they camp right up against the Red Sea where there's no escape for them. And so they're caught between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. But God's worked it that way. And we see as well that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We'll look at that in a second. But Phil Riken says, What the Israelites saw was the world's most powerful army supported by the world's most advanced military technology, the chariot. And you can imagine they're parked there against the Red Sea. There's nowhere for them to go. And they probably see the dust coming, ascending up from miles away. And they know what it is. What else could it be? That much dust coming up. And then they begin to come inside and they see, oh no, they brought the chariot. We don't probably think much of chariots. Think of tanks or fighter planes. Today it's probably drones. But they have the most advanced technology in the world. And they're coming against a people who are walking on foot and who are trapped there against the Red Sea. And we see in verse 5, Pharaoh's regret. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? We see as well back in verse 3 that Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So Pharaoh expresses regret. Not regret for what he did to the Israelites, but regret that he let them go. They don't have their servants anymore. Their slaves aren't there. And he's upset about that. And God, I almost feel like if you've been fishing, how you kind of tease the bait in front of the fish, trying to get it to bite. God sent the Israelites walking this way and that way so that they look lost out there. And it just kind of draws Pharaoh in. We can get him back. They don't know which way to go. They're, they're kind of stuck here. And so let's go and get them. We see God's sovereignty over Pharaoh again in verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel 
while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And so God's working on Pharaoh's heart, who's responding to the stimulus or whatever he sees, the wandering, the reports he's getting, the fact that they're trapped against the Red Sea, all this God's working together to get Pharaoh and the Egyptian army to attack the Israelites. And again, as we think about this, I think we have to understand that we're often in the situation of the Israelites where we don't understand what all is going on, but maybe it looks like God's drawing in our enemies against us. Well, he may well be, and we don't know his purpose, but when they saw it, they were afraid. It also reminded me of Christ and his victory at the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what Christ did at the cross was a triumph over his enemies. To what extent Satan understood the plot, the plan, I'm not sure. But at that moment, there he is. Satan thinks perhaps the plan is working. He's going to put to death the Son of God. But it's in that moment that God gains the victory. And something similar is going on here. Pharaoh's been drawn in. He thinks, I'm going to get the victory over the Egyptians. What can they do against my chariots? They're defenseless. They're trapped. And God gets the glory over Pharaoh. In particular, he says he wants to get the glory of Pharaoh and that Egypt would know the Lord, or that they would know that he is Yahweh. What is he speaking of with this knowledge of the Lord? Nehemiah 9.10 says, You perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Now, maybe you guys understand this. We don't usually use names in that kind of way, that uh, our name has great meaning. But I think we get the idea you make a name for yourself. Someone accomplishes something great, they make a name for themselves. God made a name for himself that day at the Red Sea. So what's Nehemiah speaking of? He calls not only Egypt to know who he was, but for many surrounding countries, the world around to know this is who God is, the God who defeated the Egyptian army, the God who parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptians. In Isaiah 63, 12, it says, that God who calls his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. So again, we see that purpose. God's making his name known everlastingly. Perhaps even saying this will be spoken of throughout all history. It's recorded in his word. We're still talking about what God did that day and we're praising him for that salvation. But as we think of this knowledge of God, what is it that God's really driving for? Well, the New Covenant speaks specifically of a knowledge of God or knowledge of the Lord. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, God speaking says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And so here's what God desires, not just that he makes some name for himself amongst the Egyptians, but that his people would know him. There's a relational aspect to that. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, speaking specifically of the new covenant, says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Really a repetition of what we saw in 24. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. 
For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so here God speaking of the new covenant speaks of a covenant people who all know the Lord. There's no none in the covenant that don't know the Lord. Why? Because God has forgiven their sins and their iniquities. He remembers their sin no more. And so God is doing a work. His desire, even his the realization of the covenant people of God today is that they know him because they've had their sins forgiven. John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so now as we think of this knowledge of the Lord, ultimately, I'm not saying this is where the Egyptians were, but the knowledge that God is striving for is not just an academic ascent of, oh, there's a greater God than the gods we worship in Egypt. It is a saving knowledge. Eternal life is that they know God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And then Habakkuk 2.14 speaks in a similar way. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so, ultimately, this is what God's doing. God is making a name for himself. How has he done it? Well, he did it there through salvation. Watch and see the salvation that God's going to render through the Red Sea. He saved his people from certain death. But in the New Covenant, there's going to be a greater knowledge. Their sins are going to be forgiven. How's that going to be accomplished? Well, he's going to make a name for himself. How? By salvation. By saving his people. What does that require? The Son of God to come and die, to shed his own blood, to be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's done this. He's made a name for himself. Why? So that there would be this everlasting relationship, so his people would be saved and be with him forever. But also... For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so through the advance of the kingdom, the world's going to know who the Lord is. And in particular, when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. So this is what God's working. And here we get a small glimpse of it. And in some ways, it becomes a pattern for the salvation that we see given to us throughout God's word. It becomes a pattern for the knowledge of the Lord that will be expressed in greater and greater revelation as we come closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ. But here God is glorifying himself over the greatest power, the greatest nation in the world, the greatest technology. It says even over the chariots and the horsemen in verse 18 of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so God shows his glory and makes a name for himself. Now let's talk a little bit about what actually happened there at the Red Sea. The Lord really starts the entire movement. Well, even further back, he starts it by putting them in a place to get the Egyptians to come. But we really see the starting of the movement by the Lord moving between Israel and Egypt. Now remember we talked last Sunday about the pillar of fire and of cloud. And how it led the people all through the wilderness wanderings. And whichever way it led, they went. But now, they're not following it exactly. It it departs and goes, not in front of them, but behind them. And becomes a guard for them against the Egyptians. Look at verse 19 and 20. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them 
and the pillar of cloud moved from, from before them and stood behind them. Uh, last week, I talked a little bit about the idea that uh, there are elements of the pillar of fire and of cloud that reminds us of the Holy Spirit and manifestation. We said it was a theophany. It's God manifested and perhaps the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Here we're told the angel of God, which is the same language as the angel of the Lord, and is often understood to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. The angel of God goes from, it says it was before them, and it, the angel of God moves and goes behind them. And then it says also the pillar goes. So it seems to be dist- distinguishing between the two. They're not synonymous with one another. Something about the pillar of cloud leading them also contained momentarily, maybe throughout the wandering, a manifestation of God, the angel of God was there in the cloud with them. However we understand this, we see there's a divine manifestation that's given to them. More than just the pillar this time. The angel of God is there. And again, this may well be an appearance of Christ in some form or another before he took on human flesh. But God, in a form or another, appears as a messenger before them and goes behind them to protect them. Um, some of your versions may have this. It wasn't as clear in the ESV, and I think it's hard to distinguish. But as we look at verse 19, uh, excuse me, verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. The ESV really takes the perspective of uh, without either army coming near one another, and that is what happened. Uh, I think some different versions understand the Hebrew to be saying that basically the pillar of cloud and fire puts shade or shadow upon the Egyptian army, darkness on them, maybe even sh- uh, hiding out the moon. So there's no light over Egypt while it get, gave light to uh, the Israelites. That may be true. I'm more comfortable with how the ESV has rendered it because it doesn't quite draw the conclusion. But that may be what's implied by this. Why are they not coming together? Well, it may be that God is blinding the Egyptians while he's giving light to his people. It may also be possible that it's the sheer fact that there is a wall of fire and of cloud between the two. And who would dare approach at that point? But either way, the point is clear that God is protecting his people. He goes between them. He's fighting for them already. I mentioned last week that my my understanding, my perspective is that the Red Sea is the Red Sea. And I touched a little bit on why I have that view. There are some who have argued against this being the Red Sea. Uh, the word uh, from the Hebrew can mean reed, this reed sea. And they've argued that, well, there aren't reeds in salt water. There's not papyrus. The paper sea is somehow how it could be rendered. Um, so there have been some who have argued against it, and as I've looked at it, that word Red Sea, I think I told you guys last time, is mentioned elsewhere. I think it's in Numbers. Speaking of, um, maybe it's not Numbers. I forget now where it was I referenced last Sunday, but uh, that Solomon built a port on the Red Sea, and we have the exact location of where it was. We know it is the actual Red Sea. It's probably what we would call today the Gulf of Suez. There's a more narrow section of the uh, very northern northwest tip of the Red Sea where that port was built and probably this is where they are right now as they cross. 
So I'm of the opinion that that is, that he, we're speaking of the actual Red Sea. And I'm going to talk some more about this. I didn't include this in my notes, but multiple commentaries that I read had this same story. So I'll try to give it to you from memory because I think it was good. Um, it was, uh, a pastor was telling a story of a liberal pastor in a church, and he was preaching on this, and somebody in the congregation stood up and said, Amen! Praise God! What a miraculous miracle he worked! That he drowned them, or that he parted the Red Sea. And the pastor said, No, 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 no. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It was a smaller lake. It was probably only six inches deep. And that same guy stood up and said, Praise God for the miracle he worked in drowning the entire Egyptian army in only six inches of water. Either way, we see there's a miracle that God's working here. Now, it's not a natural occurrence, right? This is something obviously supernatural that's going on here. Again, it has been argued that maybe the tide went down and, you know, they went through the marsh and then the tide came back up and there's been all these kind of arguments. But what we see is really a uh, supernatural, a miraculous occurrence. Why? Well, we're told a few things. One is we're told that... uh, There's an east wind that blows all through the night. There's a wind specifically designed to move in such a way as to do this. Secondly, verses 21 and 22 talk about a wall of water. A wall of water. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the uh, newer Narnia movies. Uh, The last... uh, My kids would know. The the last movie uh, that they made of the series, there's a scene at the end where there's an actual wall of water. And the water parts. and But a wall of water. This, I mean, maybe if you've gone to SeaWorld, you've seen it in glass or something, right? But this is something we've never seen before. This is something that doesn't ever naturally occur. There's not some tsunami tidal wave coming that just stops right there. And it's just a solid wall of water, not moving. And it says that they walk between two walls of water. So however we might try to explain it, it doesn't work. If we think it's the tide going, the tide's going to be on one side, right? Or any other kind of occurrence we can imagine, this is something abnormal, something amazing. In Psalm 78, 13, it says, He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. There's a heap of water on either side of you as you're walking in between these two. I mentioned this already with the story of the miracle, but uh, the depth of the water is definitely implied by the fact that in verse 28 it says it covered the horses and the chariots. Again, that's not sentences of water. However uh, deep it was, it was deep enough that it could go over the top of a standing chariot or a standing horse or a man standing on top of a chariot. I mean, if we just probably guess, that's at least eight feet, right? But more than that to drown them in such water that they couldn't survive. And so, yes, I think it's the Red Sea, and it's quite amazing however we look at it. So we talk about supernatural again. We see in verses 15 and 16, and in verses in 21 and 22, the timing of it. In verses 15 and 16, it's when Moses holds the staff out over the water that it all begins. And as they cross and get to the other side, he does the same thing. He puts the staff back over it, and the waters come back together. If somehow someone could argue that this is a natural occurrence... Natural occurrences don't occur at our timing, do they? Our weatherman can't even get right what's coming when we know it's coming. But to predict it in this kind of way or to make it happen would be remarkable. 
Verses 26 and 27, it returned, the waters returned at Moses' command. Also, as we think of the timing, it ends when the Israelites are through and before the Egyptians are through. It ends at the perfect timing to deliver or to save God's people and to judge the Egyptians. We have to understand as, as we think about this and this being this miraculous work of God, that it was really an act of faith to walk in between two walls of water in seeking your salvation. Hebrews 11.29 says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And so Hebrews tells us this was an act of faith that they did. They were trusting God and his salvation. I would assume that the Egyptians, they don't enter as an act of faith. They enter in desperation to get back what they lost, to seek the victory. And as we think about it in that way, by faith, they pass through the waters. Without faith, the Egyptians die and are lost. I mean, does that not speak to us of that future salvation that we is accomplished in Jesus Christ? None of us will enter into eternal life. None of us will enter into the promised land apart from the fact that we have faith in Christ. And if we attempt to do so otherwise, we would die. Look at verses 23 through 25. We see the panic that happens with the Egyptian army. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord, again, that word, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. God's going to make a name for himself. And he does so. They know that God is fighting for the Israelites. There's a military realization that I think comes upon them. They realize that their position is not very good. We're not told how wide this passage was through the Red Sea. But we know military that going through small passages limits the fighting ability that they would have had. But let's also speak of the very fact that they're walking between walls of water. At some point, they have to look to each side and realize this could go bad for us. And at that same moment, it says the wheels begin to clog up. Now, always it's fascinating. It says the Israelites went through the Red Sea on dry land. This wind blew all night. It parted the sea. And the wind also dried out the land. Right, We understand this should be muddy. This should be a hard, a soft surface to pass through. But God dried the land by the wind. So somehow something's happening now. It's becoming muddy again. Maybe water's seeping up from below. Maybe the walls are starting to even now begin to seep back a little bit. But whatever causes it, God mates the wheels of the chariots to clog. So the greatest technology they had of the day, and it's out. You can't use it anymore. Uh, again, I think... Imagine the United States with drones and their fighter jets and there's an EMP, electromagnetic pulse. Thanks. Electromagnetic pulse that all of a sudden they can't fly anymore. We can't use our technology. What good would it be? And so God, in a miraculous way, brings an end to their greatest strength, their technology. 
I talked already about the wind that came and how God parted the Red Sea. But let me read this account to you in Psalm 77. It says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. If I were to go into Psalm 77, I think it's clear that the reference is actually to what took place at the crossing of the Red Sea. If we take that and try to understand what's going on here, then I think this east wind may well have been, it could have been what we would think of as a tornado, hurricane, some kind of force that's driving the water back. And they're walking, as it were, in the eye of the hurricane with water on either side. And now the Egyptians are seeing the lightning flashing. It says the earth trembled. Were the earthquakes going on? It says God looked down upon them and they panicked. What did they see in the angel of God or the pillar of fire and cloud that all of a sudden they realized we're not fighting against the Israelites at all. It's Yahweh that we're fighting against. And we're not going to win this battle. And so they panic and they're ready to run back. But the chariots got bowed down. There's no escape. There's no getting back. And I think it's important that we understand they wanted to flee because they understood that these things were the work of the Lord, the work of Yahweh. Verse 25 at the very end. Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And so God is making a name for himself and they're afraid. As we think of this again, I've said already this is a familiar story. I want us to see greater depth maybe than we typically think of. I think there are ways in which this story points us back to the creation account. Genesis 1.9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The word wind that's used here is the same as breath or spirit. In verse 21, and it's used again if you look at verse uh, chapter 15, verse 8, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in the heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. And again in verse 10, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So this word is the same word that's used as spirit when it talks about the spirit hovered over the waters in the creation account. And likewise, God gathered the waters into one place to make dry land in the creation account. Uh, Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that same word that's used in chapter 14 and 15 is used there in the creation account. Listen to Genesis 8-1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. So again, we see something very similar. It's God using his Spirit to recreate in the time of Noah. There was water over the face of the earth and the Spirit's hovering over it and God parts the water to make dry land again for Noah in the recreation. And we see it in the creation account. The waters cover the earth and the Spirit's hovering over them and God parts them and creates dry land. And so I think we're meant to see this as something glorious that's happened. 
maybe not quite, but close to on par with what happens at the creation. God's parting waters and creating dry land for the salvation of His people. If we understand it that way, then we think of verses 27 and 28 as uncreation. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. And so if God is working in creation language, then this would be uncreation, decreation. I'm making these words up. You understand what I'm saying. God's undoing the creation by pouring the waters back upon them. And again, as we think of the flood, that same kind of thing happened. God undid what he had created in the world. And in the midst of it, he judged those who were in opposition to him and his people. I've said this before. I've read a book. I think it was on the book table, if it may still be there. But um, that was very interesting. It talked about God's means of saving through judgment. We always think of saving from judgment, but God often saves through judgment. And so here we see the Israelites are saved through a judgment that comes upon the Egyptians. Had God not judged the Egyptians, the Egyptians would have killed the Israelites or carried them back into slavery. But God judges them and saves his people all with one blow. It's really a sweet move, right? Who works these things out in this way that God would do this? So God cast them into the water in much the way that Pharaoh had done. As we think about this, I know there's a tendency, especially in our day and age, to say, well, that seems a little harsh. Why would God kill all the Egyptian army? Think back to Exodus one twenty-two. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. You may remember we talked about in past weeks that God threatens Pharaoh. As you've done to my firstborn Israel, I will do to you. We talked about that in the passing of uh, the the angel in the um, Passover. But now here again, we see the same thing. Pharaoh kills the firstborn of Israel, who is God's firstborn, his child. He kills him. How does he do so? He drowns him in the water. And so God brings an ultimate end to this judgment he's brought on Egypt by drowning Pharaoh and his army in the water. And so our passage really comes to an end with verse 30. I mean, it touches on 31 as well, but verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Uh, Such a potent statement there. What do they see? The salvation that God brought. They see all the Egyptians wash up dead. And verse 28b makes, or the second half of verse 28 makes it clear that not one of them remained. What does this mean for us, or how do we apply these truths to us? Well, the first thing I think we need to see is the Lord's deliverance, or we might say, even as it says here, the salvation of the Lord. Look how God delivered them and saved them. But first, see as well the sin of the Israelites. Look at verses 10 and twelve, ten through 12. <clears throat> when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said, <clears throat> what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Back in verse 4, we see that God told them that this is what's going to happen. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And so God's already told them what's going to happen, the end of it. He's going to deliver them. And yet here they are when they see the Egyptian army. What do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. We never should have left in the first place. And I, I mentioned maybe two weeks ago the sarcasm. They say, were, were, there not, were there no graves in Egypt that you carried us out here to die? And remember, the pyramids are basically big tombstones or graves. And so Egypt was known for their graves. Were there no graves in Egypt? We couldn't find one for ourselves that you could bury us in? You got to bring us out here to die? And you see as well their desire. They said, let us go back that we can serve the Egyptians. What's remarkable about that is, why are they being delivered? Why has God saved them? So that they could serve Yahweh. And they're saying it would have been better for us just to keep serving the Egyptians, to remain in slavery, to worship or to serve Pharaoh. And we talked about how service and worship are really very similar words here. When they saw the Egyptian army, they wanted to go back and to serve Pharaoh. And the entire reason that they had left was that they could serve God, but they're willing to turn their back on God and go back. And in case you think I'm just manifesting this as sin and thinking too much of what they said, Psalm 106 verses 6 through 10 says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep, the deep, as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And so we see God's deliverance expressed there in Psalm 106. And we see as well it says, they committed iniquity, they sinned, they rebelled against God. At the Red Sea. So God understands what happened there is rebellion. They didn't want to follow him. They wanted to go back and serve Pharaoh. And yet God delivers them. And he does so in a way that makes it clear that the deliverance was his deliverance. His salvation and his alone. Verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Isn't that remarkable? He's saying, all you need to do is just shut up. Stop with your whining, your crying, your rebelling against God, you're wanting to go back. Just stop. It's not about you. God's going to do it. You don't have to fight the Egyptians. God's fighting for you. And so their deliverance was from God alone. All they had to do was stand and watch the deliverance come. 
I think, how do we respond when we see maybe something that we fear on the horizon heading our way? Do we sometimes do like the Israelites and cry out against God? Do we blame God? Do we think God doesn't care for me? He's not paying attention. I've got to do this on my own now. Shake our fist at God. Maybe sometimes like the Israelites who leave Egypt, even in salvation, we leave our sins, we depart from them, and then when things get tough, do we want to turn back and go back to Egypt? Go back to our sin from which we fled? I want to encourage us that one application that we see of the Lord's salvation or deliverance is be silent. Shut your mouth. Watch and see what God will do. Do we have faith and trust that God is fighting the fight for his people? Do we believe that? My guess is most of the time we think we're fighting the fight and God's assisting us at times. God's like backup reinforcements. He's the, the bomber that comes and drops some bombs occasionally, but we're there on the ground doing the battle. He says, be silent and watch and see the Lord fight for you. Watch and see the salvation that God will bring. This is exactly what ultimately has been done for us at the cross. There's nothing that we have done to save ourselves. Christ did all the work for us. All we have to do is sit back and receive what Christ has done. To delight in the salvation that he has worked. Listen to John five twenty four. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me. Believe it and you have eternal life. Secondly, I think we can see that there's always a bigger picture than we're aware of, than is exposed to our vision. There's always more going on than we realize. Think about what was going on for the Israelites. They're wandering around. They look like they're lost. Are you sure this is the way I'm supposed to go? And in the end, they get stuck against the Red Sea in a cul-de-sac, as it were. There's no escape. But we're encouraged to trust God. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And then verses 19 and 20, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and it went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. We can trust God, that he will care for us, that he will take care of us. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We can believe these things to be true. These accounts teach us that our God is worthy of all trust, that he is a savior, a deliverer. And again, always a bigger picture than we see. There's always more going on than we're aware of. Thirdly, uh, we can understand or see this in light of a new exodus. And uh, really, this point I got from Tim Chester, who wrote a commentary on exodus. But uh, Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 19. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, 
a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not, uh, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So here in Isaiah, God is pointing them back to the crossing of the Red Sea. There's no question about it. It talks about the, the horses and the chariots that are, are killed there in the Red Sea. He says, but don't look back. Look ahead because I'm doing something new. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And really we see the fulfillment of that as Christ comes into the scene. As John the Baptist declares, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That way that he's making is through Christ. Along with that, we see that Jesus underwent judgment of water. We don't often think of water as judgment. Maybe we like swimming in the pool or taking a bath. But in God's word, we see several times water is judgment. We mentioned one already with Noah and the world being flooded. But Jesus at his baptism went through the waters. Jesus did not have to be baptized. He had not sinned. He wasn't trying to express repentance. He was baptized on our behalf. He passed through the judgment symbolically there in that baptism. He will later do it, or he later did it, physically at his death. Mark ten thirty eight. Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And what is that baptism he's speaking of? It's him passing through the waters of death. And then there's a resurrection. There's salvation from death and judgment. He passes through the waters and is resurrected. And so we see really a greater exodus. He suffered the waters of judgment that we could walk on dry land, that we could have salvation. And so likewise, our baptism points to the same reality. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that your fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So 1 Corinthians uses that same language. They were baptized into Moses as they passed through the waters. But Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, Do you not know that all of, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so what we see here is exactly what we go through, through union with Christ. Christ passed through the waters. He was resurrected. And so we don't face the waters of judgment. Christ has faced us for us. We were there with him. We died with him when he died. And now we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Finally, how do we respond to these truths? Look at the response of God's people in verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So two responses, fear and belief. We talk a lot, I think we've explained this many times, fear in God's word means more than just being afraid. It's an idea of reverence, an idea of awe. The idea, we we don't use it this way, but all some, or even what our hymnal sometimes uses, all full, it's full of awe. 
But I, I don't want to also, I don't want to take away from the fact that there's genuine fear, I think. They have just seen the power of God manifested. They're watching even now as the bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the seashore, all of them dead. How do they respond? They fear God. This is a God who brings death on his enemies. What's the conclusion we ought to draw from that? I don't want to be his enemy. I'm afraid of this God. The same is true for us today. God speaks of a future judgment that is coming upon all those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. If we see this here, we ought to be afraid. We ought to tremble and know that God will keep his word. There will be a judgment. And our desire is that none of you be in that judgment. That you pass through those waters in Christ. And so we see the other part of that is, it says, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. They believed in Yahweh. And so this fear of God, this reverence, this awe, but this trembling fear of the great power of our God that should lead us to believe and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you today, that needs to be our response. This isn't just some story that we read in God's Word. Our God is a powerful God. He made a name for Himself, an everlasting name for Himself in that day. Do you see that name? If you do, you ought to be afraid. You ought to be afraid, especially if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. But if you have, you can know that in Christ you've passed through those waters already. You have been saved through that. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we understand, we know that we are a sinful people who are deserving of judgment. And yet, Lord, you have been merciful to us. Even as you did to your people Israel in the Old Testament, Lord, we thank you that you have given us salvation, not just from waters, not just from physical death, but spiritually through your Son, Jesus Christ, who passed through the waters of death for us, who walked through to the other side, who was resurrected. And we pray, Lord, that our trust and hope would be in him. Lord, forgive your messenger for the ways in which he fails, but we pray that you would drive home by your spirit fear of you reverence and awe of who you are that would make us cry out that would cause us to believe lord we pray that we would trust in your son jesus christ for our salvation we pray this all in his name amen